Okay, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm Bradford Green, RUF at TCU since 2019. I've been with RUF um, for about 10 years now. I'm originally from Tennessee. Um, my wife, Christina, and I have three kids, uh, Weldon, Rosie, and Wilkes, and Weldon's with us this morning. So thank you so much for having me. We're going to look at Psalm 24 this morning. There we go, Psalm 24. So let's hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you've promised it. It always goes out and accomplishes your purposes. It never returns to you empty. We pray that that would be true this morning. We pray that you would do it all for your glory and for our good. Amen. Okay, I'm convinced that one of the greatest moments in the history of television comes from The Office season four. It's when Michael Scott, who's the main character of the show, uh, is overcome uh, with financial burdens. He feels like beyond all hope. And so finally he comes to the end of himself and he opens the door of his office and he shouts to everyone, I declare bankruptcy. And so uh, Oscar, who is the accountant uh, who knows a little more about these things, says to Michael, he says, you can't just declare bankruptcy. You can't just say the word and expect anything to happen. I didn't say it, Michael says. I declared it. Now, I think that that scene is so funny because all of us understand that th some things are so important that they require much more than just saying or even declaring Something really important stuff like bankruptcy or, or getting married or buying a house require specialists, almost teams of specialists, right? And, and paperwork and, and notaries and, and witnesses. Really important things, in other words, require some level of ceremony. And ceremony is what we have here in Psalm 24. In fact, this scene is very similar to a, a different television event that, that happened recently, the coronation of King Charles. If you watched it in, in human terms, it was really a ceremony out of another age. It was solemn, it was dignified, majestic even, and one part in particular paralleled actually what we get here in Psalm 24. It was a part of the coronation called the recognition. And so in that moment, Charles was presented to his people at all four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, and the Archbishop of Canterbury proclaimed him the undoubted king, 
To which all and sundry responded by shouting, God save King Charles. This psalm asks us to consider what if an even greater king showed up. An, an all-creating, all-holy, all-victorious king of all the earth. What would that coronation be like? And how would we respond? And so this psalm, in fact, does a kind of double duty. It's, it uh, looks not just forward to this, this cosmic coronation to come, but also backward to a historical and liturgical uh, occasion, probably, we are not positive, the return of the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, maybe in 1 Chronicles 13.8, when David, who is the author of the psalm, returns victorious from Kiriath-Jerim. And so like a lot of songs, this one might be rooted in historical events, but it points to something far more. We don't just get this kind of bare prose uh, description of David's return from battle. Instead, we get to put on these, these eschatological glasses and we read this beautiful stylized version of the king of all of the earth returning from battle triumphant to sit upon his throne and to receive our worship. And it's a scene that is far more uh, dignified, far more solemn, far more majestic than any human king's coronation because it's a scene that points forward to the Messiah, to the King of Kings, Jesus himself in all of his glory. And so that is what we're going to look at this morning in three parts. <clears throat> the first is the King Blesser. The second is the subjects blessed. The third is the royal blessing. So the blesser, the blessed, and the blessing. Let's look at the first of these, the blesser. So Psalm 24 opens with a bit of a prologue in verses 1 and 2. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and, the, uh, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay, according to somebody who is better at Hebrew than I am, the first and most emphatic word, actually in both verses 1 and 2, in the original language is God. And so we might read this as the Lord's is the earth in its fullness. And by extension, the Lord's is the world and all, like you and I, that dwell therein. And then verse 2 invokes creation beginning again with God. He has founded it upon the seas. And he has established it upon the rivers. And so this verse draws a distinction between the, the wild and mighty waters. The sea often in the Bible symbolizes uh, what Greg Beale called old world threats. Okay, this danger, sort of ancient chaos and darkness. And, and then so it's the land, the dry earth where humans abide in, in the safety of this, this great king. And I think the idea here and why we need this prologue is that though the rest of the psalm is very Israel-centric, he's the God of Jacob, he comes to Jerusalem, nevertheless, this is not merely Israel's God. This is the God of all the earth, the creator and sustainer of all that we see or know. And so it's a little bit of a check to us, I think, uh, maybe a reminder that Christians throughout history and certain, uh, certainly the Israelites have struggled with thinking that if God is our God, then he is like us. He looks like us. He, he thinks like us and cares about what we care about. But the truth is that his all-seeing God's providential eye 
uh, takes in at this moment all peoples in all places everywhere, including the places of great tragedy we mentioned uh, in the, the prayer earlier, including right here as well. And so 2 Corinthians 69, for instance, says something very similar. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. In other words, this God, this, this great creator king, the great blesser, knows and sees all and is ready to give his blessing. But who will receive it? That's our second part here. The, the king, uh, the first was the king blesser, and now the subjects blessed. So verse 3 asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? This is worship language. This is one of the many places, uh, pictures in the Psalms of, of God's people going up to worship the Lord. And so Derek Kidner, a commentator, says this about what's pictured here. He says, is to make a deliberate quest to mount to a vantage point to con, uh, converge on it with other seekers and finally to stand before the throne. In other words, this great king that, that we've talked about established in verses 1 through 2, who who may come before him to worship him and to receive his blessing. This is liturgical Q&A. And so verse 4 answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then 5a, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Okay, what are we to make of this? It's kind of a jarring question, really. Might make us a little bit nervous. It seems to be saying that a perfect king can only be worshipped by perfect people. And so we might ask, does it take clean hands and a, a pure heart to be blessed by the Lord? Or does the blessing of the Lord provide us with clean hands and a pure heart? I think the answer is yes. Sometimes we run into like a spiritual kind of chicken and egg situation. I think we have one here. And so we have to untangle it with our best theology. But first, we should remember and, and maybe reiterate what's being said here. The question is, who can mount up in worship and, and receive the blessing of the king of all of the earth? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, this verse is saying, if you hope to worship God, you must be holy inside and out, uh, a worshiper of the one true God and not idols, and righteous and true in all of your dealings. And this checks out, after all. I mean, not just anybody it can come even and worship an earthly king and be admitted into the king's presence. So how much more our God? So, we shouldn't be surprised in that the picture of the one who qualifies to worship a perfect king is a picture of a perfect worshiper. Uh, my intern, Walt Horton, uh, he's in his second year of the internship. He's from Austin, Texas. Uh, so, he, he grew up here and uh, grew up in, in our heavy football culture, although we're a heavy baseball culture at the moment, right? But uh, he told me a story about his high school football coach. He said they were practicing one day, and Walt said something kind of jovial and kind of chatty. 
uh, to him at the wrong moment. He said his coach whipped around and said, hey, I'm not your friend. And that really made uh, an impression on him, you might imagine. It really stuck with Walt. Like, man, this guy's, this guy's different. That's my football coach. That's not my buddy. And so, too, God, in the solemnity and majesty of the holy place, uh, conveys this idea of this king is different. There are echoes here. In fact, the same Hebrew expressions as used in Isaiah chapter 6, that chapter full of awe and dignity, the seraphim are, are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So much so that Isaiah thinks he is dead, if you remember, because he doesn't have clean hands and a pure heart. And neither do we. And that's why it's only by grace that we have access to him. And I'm convinced that this is another check on us because um, <clears throat> we, we tend to uh, back away a little bit or um, obfuscate this idea of um, solemnity and, and majesty and, and holiness. Um, a, a few years ago, in fact, the Jeopardy champion, Ken Jennings, um, may or may not be familiar with, he is himself a sort of semi-pro comedian. And he came out with a book about how humor has just sort of taken over our culture. And he said this, the thing that woke me up, he said, was when airline safety videos started to get funny. When I flew as a kid, I was terrified of that little laminated pamphlet that told you about oxygen mask and, wh and where your life jacket is and where's the nearest exit. But a few years ago, those safety demonstrations started to get replaced by little videos with musical numbers. And they were full of kind of wacky non sequitur jokes. Delta had an 80s themed one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the pilot, just like in the movie Airplane. And I remember thinking, wait, why does this have to be funny? There is nothing less funny than the odds of a plane crash, right? What is happening to us that we need jokes here? It's a great question, and this psalm is asking us to lay aside, in a similar way, some of the levity that we move through our lives with and feel the, the weight of this king in the throne room of God. But thanks be to him that though he does not accept worship from sinful creatures, he does accept worship from redeemed ones. And that is us. And that's what we see in verse 5 if we look closely. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Other translations use the word vindication here. It's this Old Testament picture of justification by faith. This verse is saying, in the presence of the king, by faith, all that the king has is yours. Your worship of him, in other words, opens this channel to receive the blessing, the righteousness needed in order to worship. And so, uh, is that a chicken and egg situation? Maybe, I don't know. It reminds me of what my, my seminary professor, Dr. Doug Kelly, wrote in my favorite book on prayer. It's called, If God Already Knows Why I Pray. That's the title of the book. It's a great title, great question. And he says this, the God of the scriptures has great blessings stored up for his people, but he has so planned it that those blessings can only be released by the prayers of his people. 
I think we can use the same template and say God has great blessings stored up for his people in worship, but he has so planned it that those blessings can only be released through worship. And so we say again, in the presence of the king, all that the king has is yours. The blessing is yours. How can that be? It's because he has already conquered. Jesus is not sitting on his throne waiting for you to conquer, uh, or conquer your sin, conquer your ignorance and folly so that you could come to him. He did all of that before he even sat down. And that's the picture that we get in verses 7 through 10. And this is our, our third and final section here. The royal blessing. So verse 7. Lift up your, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Okay, uh, what's happening here? That sounds great, but what is happening? What does it mean? The picture is of a victorious returning king. So think David with the ark representing the presence of God, seeking entrance into the holy city, okay, into the holy place. It's stylized so that the procession is speaking directly to the gates as if the doors of the city um, were animate and, and, and were speaking as the doorkeepers. So remember, we said earlier that important things require ceremony and this is a liturgical, worship-oriented ceremony. It's like a, a captain coming aboard his ship in which everybody on the ship already knows the captain is here and he's coming aboard, but he is still announced formally so that the proper ceremony uh, can be set in train. That is why we get this majestic back and forth continuing in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Now, what does all this mean? Well, um, there are two kinds of people in this room today dealing with one problem. There's two kinds of people in any room on any day dealing with one problem. The problem is this. According to verses 1 and 2, the world that we live in and we ourselves have been made by a great king that deserves our worship. But we are too sinful to provide that worship. In our sinful and broken selves, we cannot deliver him the worship that he requires. We struggle, in fact, to even want to. The author Jared Wilson puts it this way, speaking of this psalm, in fact. I would love to enjoy fellowship with God to receive his blessing and his righteousness, but I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. And I've often lifted up my soul to falsehood and have sworn deceitfully. If that's the standard for acceptance under God's favor, I can only hang my head in shame and sorrow. So the first person um, in this room to speak of is someone who lives full-time in that state, uh, who's never sought the king's face and received in turn blessing and, and righteousness and salvation, who does not know Jesus. 
And so if that is you, then I invite you this morning to, to open by repentance and faith the doors of your heart that the King of Glory could come in. But the other group of people, probably most of us in this room, have done that. We've repented and believed, but for any number of reasons, though we already live in the city, we wonder, we wonder if the king has really conquered, if he really is who he says he is. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you've received some sort of devastating medical diagnosis in yourself or your family. You're sitting here, maybe you are dogged by, just relentlessly shadowed day in and day out by unwanted thoughts, uh, some combination of sinful and anxious, just ugly, discouraging thoughts. Or maybe you are just so tired, so incredibly worn out with your life that just getting out of bed uh, this morning or any morning, but maybe particularly in this weather, is just so difficult. And in each of these circumstances, you are wondering, is the king who he says he is? Is he really victorious? And the message of this psalm to those who don't believe or to those who do believe but are struggling is that whatever battle you are fighting, Christ has already won it. He's already won it. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The real answer is that Jesus did and died and rose and ascended into heaven as the king of glory. So that his are the clean hands. His is the pure heart. His is the battle that you are fighting, even the whole war itself. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. And he is coming, is in fact already there to sit on the throne of all the earth. He has not set all things right yet. It's obvious to me. But... He surely will. And then the, the clean hands and pure heart of Christ will be fully and finally yours. They are already counted to you in him. But one day, when he returns, they will be embodied by you. They will be yours. And he will, in fact, bring his holy city down with him. The king of glory coming into the new Jerusalem where he will rule and reign for all time, and we will be his blessed subjects. And that sounds like very good news. In fact, Spurgeon said it this way. He said, he rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your good word from Psalm 24. And we thank you that uh, you promised it will not go out and return to you empty. We pray that you would uh, challenge us, convict us, and encourage us, though, um, through this word this morning. We pray that you would do all this um, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.